Our scripture this morning comes from a glorious psalm. It will be obvious who is in view in this psalm as we read, and then as we hear Pastor Mark open this up to us, it is Psalm 2. If you have one of these Bibles from the table in the back, it's on page 448. Psalm 2. Hear the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, as Americans, I think we're pretty suspicious of kings, which is what Psalm 2 is really all about. If you think about it, American history or the history of our nation was actually born in rebellion to a king. But we also admire kings, don't we? It seems that when William and Kate got married, news stopped except for that event, right? And if George takes a bath, stop the press because we got to catch that action. So we do, there's a, there's an element of admiration towards kings that we even have even though we are a little suspicious of them. We also, I think, desire a king, not necessarily in the political sense, but we desire a king in part just because if you think about the proliferation, the widespread uh, resurgence of superhero films, think about that. It seems like every few months a new one pops up. I mean, news is already starting that summer of 2015, the big civil war happens, right? Batman versus Superman comes out the same time as Captain America 3. I mean, stop. That's going to be a huge event. But this popularity of superheroes and this this wanting to admire power and greatness and glory, I think says something about us. It's obviously clear, painfully clear sometimes that we, we, we need a king personally. I mean, if you think about the days in which we live where we don't want anyone telling us what to do or how to live our lives. We'll determine how we're going to live. 
We'll express our individuality with various kinds of external decoration. We'll manipulate our gender so that Facebook will set up 57 different kinds so we can pick ours. Redefinition of the family, the basic structure of our society, cultural acceptance of all forms of perversion. Everyone has a right to his or her own version of truth and reality, our own perspective on life and meaning. And each one is equally valid as any other. Except if that perspective that you hold or someone else holds collides with the cultural consensus. It's a real crazy time to be alive. David Wells puts it like this in his book, God in the Whirlwind. He says, the truth is that all of life right now is being reconceived and reimagined. However, this attempted rebuilding of ourselves and our society on different foundations is leading us, if I may be so bold, into a dead end. The truth is that we're not doing very well. When God, the eternal God, dies then the self immediately moves in to fill the vacuum. And then something strange happens. The self also dies. So we we need a king. We're not doing well. But we also have a king. That is the great announcement of Easter. That we have a king, whether or not we acknowledge it or not. The resurrection of the son of God is the installation of a king over this universe. That's what it is. That's what the event is about. Think about Romans chapter one, verses four and five for a moment. These two verses, which underscore the idea that the resurrection of the son of God was the installation of him as king. Paul writes, The son who was descended from David, talking about Jesus according to the flesh, and was, verse 4, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there it is. The resurrection of the son of God by the power of the spirit means that he is declared to be the son of God, that he is installed as Lord. Why? Verse 5. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Easter is about the installation of God's king. And his name is Jesus Christ our Lord. And his goal as king is to bring about obedience to him by faith. He's not living on earth right now in present bodily form. So it's obedience by faith to him, not just for Americans, but according to verse five of Romans one, among all the nations everywhere in the world is to bow before God's resurrected King. And that's what Psalm two is about. Even though Psalm two was written hundreds of years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is quoted all throughout the Old, or the New Testament, rather, in reference to Christ. And we're going to see that in the first point of today's sermon. So here's where we're going to launch in. We're going to go right into Psalm 2. So if you've got a Bible, either on your phone or in your lap or something like that, make sure it's open in front of you. We're going to be spending about 30 minutes this morning right here in this Psalm um, and see what we can learn about God's King. First of all, here's the first point. The revelation of the king. 
I want to ask this question. Who is this king that's being talked about in this psalm? Notice in verse 2, he's referred to as the Lord's anointed. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that word is Messiah in the Old Testament, which is in the New Testament translated Christ. So it's speaking of the Christ here. It's speaking whoever this king who is going to come is going to be called the Lord's anointed. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. David was promised in the Old Testament, the king, that his throne was being established forever in 2 Samuel 7, 13. And this throne would never be vacated. However, as we see in the Old Testament, there are so many who came after David who were not worthy of the throne. They acted in faithlessness. And destructive ways. And so a yearning began to grow in the heart of God's people that one day God would once again act and bring back another David, but one in whom there would be a greater than David. So when Christ came, his kingdom was very, very different from that of David's. Those who thought that he first came to establish a political kingdom were sorely disappointed. And that kind of surrounds Christ's whole earthly life. There's this expectation placed upon him that he's going to be a political ruler. Since he comes in the name of the Lord, he takes the title of Christ or Messiah. And so the assumption is he's going to be our political king. In fact, right up to his ascension and his resurrection, the disciples ask him, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1. They think that he's a political savior. But as he makes very clear in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It was not a political kingdom Jesus had come to establish. It was rather a spiritual kingdom first and then a physical kingdom second at his second coming. But it's a spiritual kingdom that he's coming to establish. Namely, setting up his reigns, reign in the life of individuals. Declaring his kingship and lordship over people in their hearts and in their lives. In verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2, we see this amazing statement. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Very, very important verse. That verse is used in reference to Jesus' life no less than seven times in the New Testament. And I'm not going to turn us to all those places. I am going to reference them now, though. For instance, remember Jesus at his baptism. He comes down into the Jordan to be baptized by John. When he's lifted up out of the water, a voice from heaven speaks. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. You are my son, God the Father says. And the Holy Spirit descends down upon him as a sign and seal of his kingship and messiahship and being the true Christ, the son of the living God. So Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 was therefore interpreted as referring to God's anointing of Jesus by his spirit at his baptism. But that's not the only place Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 is used in reference to Christ. Mark chapter 15, at his death. So Jesus ministers for three years, healing, teaching, calling people to repentance to enter into his kingdom. He's put to death for it. Pilate Pilate sneeringly asks him in Mark chapter 15, you are the king of the Jews? 
Jesus' derisive rejoinder was, you say so. That is, you, Pilate, by your actions and words are declaring me royalty. And what does the Roman centurion say upon seeing his crucifixion at the end of Mark chapter 15? Truly this man was the son of God. Portraying Jesus' crucifixion as his coronation combined with a declaration of sonship clearly echoes Psalm 2. God is pouring out on his, of his son. God's pouring out of his son turned out to be his son's crowning. There's no kingship without sacrifice. So Psalm 2 is alluded to in the baptism of Jesus. It's alluded to in the death of Jesus. But maybe most importantly, it's alluded to directly in the resurrection of Jesus. And here's where I want to turn you. So keep your place in Psalm chapter 2. And if you would, go with me to Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament. Acts 13 and verse 32 and 33. Here we see Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 quoted directly. Acts 13, 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's why I'm preaching Psalm 2 on Easter morning. Because the Bible tells us it's a resurrection Psalm. It's a psalm about the resurrection of Jesus. You notice Paul preaches, he's preaching here, and he says about the resurrection of Jesus that that was the day in which God declared, you are my son. The resurrection is the vindication that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he really is God's son, not just a Galilean man who preached and taught and healed. No resurrection No declaration of the sonship of God. He's just a man. But one last place is Hebrews chapter 1. If you're in Acts, keep going to the right and find the book of Hebrews chapter 1. It's near the book of Revelation, near the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1 again refers to Psalm 2 verse 7 by quoting it in verse 5. But we'll start back up in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Sounds like a king, doesn't it? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sounds like a king. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Sounds like a king. He's greater than the angels even. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Again, Psalm 2 verse 7. Referring now to the present place of Christ, which is not in Galilee, not on a cross, not in a tomb, but at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling next to God. The Father, in the place of God the Father, mediating his rule on the earth through the Holy Spirit. So Psalm 2-7 is a very important verse in the New Testament, as I think we've seen. And it becomes obviously clear that the king that is being referred to in this psalm is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Jesus was anointed at his baptism, crowned at his death, established as God, God's king at his resurrection, and exalted and enthroned at his, at his ascension. He is God's established king. And that's our king. So that's point number one. That's the revelation of God's king. Next point, rebellion against the king. Rebellion against the king. And this is in verses 1 through 3 of this psalm. So back to Psalm chapter 2 if you are not there already. And we're going to look at the first three verses of the psalm. Chapter two, or Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this is, in the Old Testament, referring to God's kingship over Israel, and the nations don't like it. The other nations don't like it. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting. The kings are setting themselves up against this king. They're wanting to break off the bonds and break off the cords and break off the chains and not be under subjection to that king. But let me be very clear. This is not just referring to two political rivals in the Old Testament. This is referring to present day people against God's king, Jesus. Rebellion. And how do they rebel? Rage. Any rage against Jesus around? Anger toward him as king and his claims over us. And if we don't like his claims, we're going to manufacture him into a Jesus that doesn't exist. Plotting, seeking ways to avoid his rule and justify our actions in so doing. Setting ourselves against him, just direct opposition. Acting defiantly, counseling together, like Psalm 2 says in verse 2, taking counsel together, joining with others in our opposition to him. And what's the ultimate goal of that? To break bonds and break cords. I want to be my own king. I want to set my own course. I want to live my own life. You know why I behave that way? Because Genesis 3 happened. The fall of man. When Adam took that fruit from that tree, that was a declaration that he will be king, not God. He will be on the throne, not God. He will be Lord and declare what is right for him, not God. And down to this day, we see the effects of Adam's sin. But notice the astonishment of the psalmist. In verse 1, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? It's as if he's astonished that people would senselessly reject God's king. He's God's king. He loves you. He's going to care for you. His submission is not a, your submission to him is not his oppression of you. It's your life. It's your freedom. It's your joy. Why do you rage? Why do you plot against him? The psalmist says, why do that? You're thwarting your own happiness. You're stabbing your own joy. You're nullifying your own freedom. In wanting to be our own king, we invite our own slavery. Because slavery to self is the worst kind of slavery. 
Now, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, refers to the death of Jesus and uses these verses as an explanation for it. Acts chapter 4, verse 25 Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes Psalm 2, verse 1. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Notice quotes the psalm, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and immediately ties it to the death of Jesus on the cross. What's the point? Our rebellion, our desire to be our own king, our desire to rage and plot and set ourselves against and counsel together to oppose the Lord's king is no more clearly demonstrated than when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Because it's there we see our desire to be king and how far it will go. We desire as human beings to be our own kings so much that we will take God's perfect son and kill him to get it. We will take our right to sovereignty and lordship over our own lives and our determination to see things our way and do things our way. And we'll do that so much that will put Jesus to death to get it. Why do, why do we do this? Why do we do this? And I'm speaking generally to us as, as just as human beings in general. In modern terms, we don't want God to be himself. We filter out things about God that we can't accept. In some ways, this is the main sin of our time. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that. My God is a God of love. Which means, my God leaves me alone, lets me do whatever I want to do with no repercussions and total acceptance, which is not by any standard definition, definition of love at all. Is that loving for a parent to do for their child? So why would we think that that's a definition of God's love? God's a God of love. He lets me do whatever I want. He makes no demands of me. He doesn't call me to submit to any king. He just tells me, be happy. Try to have an enjoyable life. Pray to me when you need it. I'll dispense something down and help you get along just fine. So there are really three ways that we reject God as king. And the reason why I'm spending so much time on this is because our culture doesn't talk about it. We don't talk about our rebellion very much. And we only get to see here the good news of the gospel when we understand how bad it really is and how rebellious we really are as people. Here's, here's some ways we reject God as king. First of all, intellectually. We do this when we reject a part of the Bible that we don't like. Right? Any parts of the Bible you don't like? You say, I can no longer accept a God who does this, who forbids this. In fact, what we're really saying is our culture's distaste for this idea means that I have to drop it. We must have a God that fits our cultural sensibilities. 
So we're reshaping God to fit our society rather than letting God just be himself. Or we reject him psychologically. We do this when we simply ignore or avoid the parts of the Bible we don't like. And we can do this as the church too. God is very strong on us giving money away rather than spending it lavishly on ourselves. But we can just avoid thinking out the implications of this for our lives, can't we? Or God is very strong on forgiveness and grace, yet we can live lives which are very judgmental and unforgiving and hold bitterness and grudges. We're not letting God be himself. We're not letting his kingship rule over every part of us. Or morally, we can reject him morally. We do this by subjectivizing all morality. What's right for you and what's right for you and what's right for you and what's right for you. For example, two professing Christians might be having sex with each other, though they're not married. Why? Because they've prayed and they felt peace about it. They ignore the objective commandments of God about sex and marriage, which God has given in his word. They follow God's law so far, but if it contradicts what they want to do and the way they behave, they're going to twist it or add to it so they can get away with it and do what they like. And some people even use religion to avoid the king. I'm a good person. What's all that talk about sinning and sinner and wrath and judgment? and That's that's mean. That's non-progressive. That's hate speech. And so we'll use religion of morality and goodness and the fact that we don't sin outwardly in some crazy ways or we try to just live a good life and try to be a good person and thereby avoid God as king. And here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the end all be all of the matter on this. The only way we really know that God is working in our lives is when we recognize that we are these kinds of people. That it's not just humanity in general, but it's this guy who by nature rejects God's kingship over him. Me, me, the one who is preaching by nature does not want Jesus to be king at all. So why is this such a problem? It's a problem because it makes it impossible to have a truly personal relationship with God. Think about this. When we shape God and mold God to fit us, we cannot have a personal relationship with God. In a personal relationship with a real person, the other person can contradict you and upset you. And then you have to wrestle through that to deeper intimacy. That's what marriage does. We upset each other, we contradict each other, and then we have to wrestle through that to get to a deeper place of oneness. But you see, when we simply ignore the parts of God that we don't like, it means we don't have a God that can ever contradict our deepest desires or say no to us. We never wrestle with him. We never let him make demands on us. We can end up worshiping a much more comfortable God, but unfortunately, a non-existent one. 
And our culture is pushing us in the direction of a God who does not interfere, who is all love and all judgment. He's not a king. They see God as not demanding much from them because he's chiefly engaged in solving our problems and making us feel good about ourselves. It's about experiencing happiness, contentedness, and having God solve our problems and provide stuff like iPhones. But as a result of this, we like to think in our culture as God is a landlord, right? A landlord just keeps the building in repair, but he doesn't live in the house. So it's good for us to think of God as a landlord, our culture says. Look, he's going to make a nice life for you and he's not going to interfere. He's not going to live with you. We also like to think of him as a cheerleader, right? Shouting encouragements from the sidelines. You go. But he's not playing in the game. Or we think of God as a therapist. Maintaining an arm's length relationship with the patient. But we know in the end that it's the patient who has to make his or her own decisions about what's right. But no, God is not a landlord. He's not a cheerleader. He's not a therapist. That's not the picture of God's king that we get in Psalm 2, is it? God is a king. That means he has absolute rights over us. He's not there to conform to us. We're there to conform to him. To know him on his terms, not on our terms. Who's not there for our convenience or simply for our healing or simply as the divine fortune teller. Handing out stuff from his big bank. He doesn't say, I'm here for you, first and foremost. He says, you're here for me. You're called to know me as I am and not as you want to be. And that, brothers and sisters and friends, is love. That is love. Don't hear anything that I've just been talking about in the last 10 or 15 minutes as not loving. It is essential to love. It is essential to understand what it means to be loved by God. Because when we contemplate and think about how we are by nature to God and his kingship, we should be amazed that a resurrection even happened and that we're not all in the grave forever. So that brings us to our third point, retribution from the king. Now we're really going to get countercultural. I'm just talking about the Bible though. All right, Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is how God responds to our rebellion. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, Bible bad word, and terrify them in his fury, Bible bad word, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what is his posture toward the rebellious nations here in the psalm and the rebellious people in general. He laughs. He holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It's retribution. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, note the quiet dignity of the all-powerful king. And the contempt which he pours upon the princes and their raging people. He has not taken the trouble to rise up and do battle with them. 
He despises them. He knows how absurd, how irrational, and how futile are their attempts against him. He therefore remains sitting and just laughs. That's a picture of a big, great king. Not a therapist, not a landlord, and not a cheerleader. It's a king. And this king is pictured, is taken up. This image of this kind of king is taken up by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-10, through 10, where we read this about Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, this is talking about his second coming when he's going to return, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's a very different picture of Jesus than we're used to hearing about in broad evangelicalism today, in broad Christianity. A Jesus who is going to be revealed from heaven, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and don't obey him, who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Four words we really don't like. All four of them. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, there's another group of people that aren't going to suffer that. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So there's going to be a group of people that's going to be shut out, put away from the presence of the Lord, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And there's going to be those who are going to be glorified. There are those who are going to marvel at his second coming, who have been longing for it and waiting for it. And those are the subjects of his kingdom now. That's the church, the true church, made up of true Christians, blood-bought people who rest entirely in what the king has done for them. On the cross and in the resurrection, for the forgiveness of their sins, for the, for the giving of them of a righteous record, a justification, adopting them into his family by faith. And the question should be for all of us, if we're not a part of that kingdom and we're not a part of that group, how can we be a part of that group? How can we be a part of the group that is going to be marveling at Jesus when he comes on that day to be glorified? And this is the last part of the sermon. And this is where the psalm ends. So we've looked at revelation of the king. He's Jesus Christ. We've looked at rebellion against the king. That's us. We've looked at the retribution of the king, his response to our rebellion, wrath and judgment. But we close with the good news of Easter, reconciliation with the king. And that's talked about in verses 10 through 12. Because this psalm doesn't end at verse 9 where it says, you're going to break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a wicked picture of judgment. That's a total destruction. That's what we just read. But he says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. 
He's going to appeal to us now to be wise, to take the sensible path, to take the reasonable path. It's not dumb to submit to the king. Our culture will tell you that. It's dumb. The Bible says it's wise. It's the height of wisdom. He says, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And here's how he tells us to be reconciled. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I love this. I love this intermingling of fear and joy of kissing and anger. I mean, it's both. It's not either or. I mean, so many churches and so many preachers go to one side or the other, right? It's either respond to Jesus. It's all happiness. It's all joy. It's all gladness. Or they go, submit, be afraid. You're going to hell. No, no, it's not either one of those. It's when you see this king as he is in all of his glory, seated at the right hand of God, all power, all authority in heaven and on earth, knowing that he holds in his hand our eternal soul and its destiny. And we understand our rebellion against him and how we don't deserve his mercy and we don't deserve his forgiveness and we don't deserve to be pardoned by him. And yet he extends a pardon to us. How can we not tremble with joy? That's how you know if a Christian is a Christian. You know what I'm saying? A person who professes to be a Christian is a real Christian. Is there a trembling joy about them? Not just happy, happy, joy, joy, but is there a sense that they're amazed that God has treated them the way he's treated them, that God has forgiven them of all he has forgiven them for, that they are, they stand in awe of him. Yes, there is real fear. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. But yes, there is real joy because we really are safe. Now I want to close with showing this is, this is how people responded to the resurrection, trembling joy. I want to show that. And then I want to close with a couple of illustrations to kind of drive it home. And then we're going to be done. All right. This is how people responded to the resurrection. And I want you to note that it's the exact response that we see here in Psalm chapter two, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, rejoice with trembling. Think about this, Matthew 28, eight. Here's how, here's the proper response to Easter. You want to know how God wants us to respond to Easter? Rejoice with trembling. Listen, this is how, this is all throughout the new Testament, Matthew 28, eight. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and began to tell the disciples fear and great joy. Not the only place. Mark 16, verse 18. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Luke 24, 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. 
Luke 24, 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? Luke, John chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The proper response to Easter, friends, is not warm fuzzies. It's awe. It's amazement. It's fear and trembling, but joy, great joy, inexpressible joy. Let me illustrate. I'll try to illustrate how this works itself out practically. There was a sermon illustration that I heard once by a, by a pastor who went to another friend's house. And, uh, this friend had a very large dog in his house and, um, this pastor and his son went up to the door of this friend, knowing that there's this large dog and he's got this little boy with him and they knock on the door and the friend opens the door and the dog comes running up and gets eyeball to eyeball with the little boy, great big German shepherd right in his face. And they're just looking at each other. He's not growling or anything. He's not just right there. And then the friend says, come on in, come on in. And he says, well, hold on a second. Um, son, will you go to the car and grab the present that we forgot. And the boy says, sure, dad. And he turns around and he takes off running. And the dog runs up behind him, gallop with a low growl. And the boy just stops in his tracks. And the friend at the door says, whoa, 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 son, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. Just walk beside him. Put your arm around his neck and he'll lick all over your face. And so the little boy put his hand on the dog and the dog turned, just licked them all up. That's what I think it means to fear with trembling and to rejoice with trembling. Our God is a great, powerful king. And he doesn't like it when his people run away from him. So walk beside him. And he'll lick your face and he'll kiss you and he'll hold you for all eternity. Okay, let's step out of the animal realm and go into the natural realm. Here's another illustration if that doesn't help. Imagine that you're on a mountaintop. You just climbed a high mountain. And you can see off in the distance a huge storm raging. And you're like, oh man, I'm in trouble. No getting down. This looks fierce. Blackest clouds you've ever seen. You can already see the static and the lightning starting to go. And you're thinking, I'm in for trouble. And you could hear it way off in the distance how hard it's raining and how the winds are swirling. And you realize that you're near the coast and it's a hurricane. And you look and that storm gets closer. It seems like it's moving as fast as you've ever seen a storm move in your life. And you get down and you find a little crevice in the rock. And you go down and you huddle yourself down and you throw yourself in that hole and you can hear it and the mountains start shaking. And then you can hear it passing by and you hear this whirring and this storm raging and all this wind pelting and literally shaking on the inside. But you know that in that hole, you are 100% absolutely safe. You don't feel a drop. You don't get hit by anything. All you see is the wall shaking, but you are perfectly, entirely safe. 
and you're happy that you found that hole. And that is what it means to rejoice with trembling. It means that you found a safe place and there's no chance that you're ever going to be destroyed. The blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus guarantees, guarantees, stamped that all those who trust in him, all those who turn to him, all those who in the language of verse 12 of Psalm 2 take refuge in him are safe and happy. That's what blessed means. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's where this psalm ends. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let me close with this, friends. The only safe place from God is in God. Everywhere outside of God's care is dangerous. He's the only hiding place that we have from his terrible judgment. If we see him as frightening and try to run away and hide, we will find no place to hide. There is none. Outside of his care, there's only wrath. But there is refuge from the judgment of God in God himself. The safest place from God. In fact, the only place is in God. So this psalm invites us all this morning to take refuge in him, to hide in the shadow of his wings. This is where we live and we serve him with joyful trembling. It is terrible and it is wonderful. I invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for demonstrating that your son was who he said he was. You loved him before the foundation of the world. You sent him to be our redeemer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life for us. Thank you that when you looked at us, there was nothing about us that would draw your appeal. You, you, were, you loved us, not as we were, but you loved us as you saw that we would be. And you came for us and you took upon yourself our sin and our rebellion, and our curse, and our wrath, and our judgment. Blessed are all who take refuge in you. Thank you for the vast majority of us that are sitting in this room this morning who are taking refuge in the Son of God. We know what it means to rejoice with trembling. We don't have to have anybody explain it to us. We know what it means to reckon with your greatness and our sinfulness, and to with trembling joy cling to Christ and to know your mercy and forgiveness and ongoing, perpetual, constant, never ending, never giving up always and forever love. Holy spirit. Thank you for opening eyes. We ask that those who remain yet outside the kingdom of God will have their eyes opened through this message or even through the baptisms that we will witness in just a moment, which celebrate the fact that you are the resurrection and the life and you who were dead now live to give life to those who were once dead. In Jesus' name, amen.